Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. We're going to continue with our story about corn. So corn, as I left you with the Aztecs, we'll say, and the idea that they're preparing corn maize the old-fashioned way, that, you know, how did that population also explode? You know, how did the Aztec population also explode? Well, it exploded for the same reasons. Calories were available, and even the populations before them that grew, grew, grew suddenly exploded. They now had lots of calories they could use. It was easily digestible. And so when you mixed corn like this with other grains, you had all eight essential amino acids. So you covered your bases, if you will. It might not necessarily be the best food, but it could be grown in abundance and most people got something. So that was the beginning of it. So then we get into, we took corn Christopher Columbus did not take the process of how, he didn't notice the process of how they made their corn. They go, oh, that's pretty cool. Look what you could have. And so that process was pretty much forgotten in Europe. And, you know, the corn that's developed there, and it was a big thing in the United States, by the way, in the 30s when they did come out and identified what pellagra was, that it was nice and deficient. And it was specifically associated with corn. It wasn't just a general population. It was a general population condition, but it was of the population that ate primarily unprocessed corn. So it's interesting, I'm saying unprocessed, and yet we're going to be talking about processed foods. But unprocessed means they didn't do the alkaline bath. Changed the whole thing. It introduced a deficiency, a huge, very important deficiency, and affected uh, medically. So when that was changed, it changed. It was like a light went on. Suddenly, pellagra was a thing of the past, you know, unless very rural areas that didn't get the word or weren't checked on in the United States, suddenly they knew what to do. It was very easy. And they could even just supplement with nice in the very least. I don't think they went around and told them how to make their corn any differently. That was, that was never done. Actually, I wanted to add this one thing so you understand that this change of how corn was processed made a big problem. When you don't do this process of bathing corn in this alkaline bath, the lime and the ash, is that you now make it so all the nutrients are really not available, not just the skin and so on and so forth, but that's primarily it. So, you know, the process, I'm just going to read, the process was very important in the early 
Mesoamerican diet as unprocessed maize, in other words, when you see corn on the cob, that's unprocessed corn, is deficient in free niacin. So a population that depends on untreated corn as a staple risks malnourishment and is more likely to develop various diseases of deficiency, such as pellagra. So pellagra is a niacin deficiency. And that really wasn't defined and discovered, identified until the early 1930s, I believe it was. So well, less than 100 years ago. So now if you're dealing with people that have to live on, you know, you've, they've forgotten how to process, they didn't think it was necessary to process, and this is the grain of their particular substance, they'll get a lot of pellagra. And so niacin deficiency is it has to do with all sorts of inflammatory processes because you're deficient, whether it's cardiovascular, whether it's mitochondrial, nobody really put it in that context before. But niacin and niacinamide are very important. They're important to tryptophan and uh, development and uh, melatonin and so on and so forth. So there's all places it goes. But uh, primarily, it's a deficiency that leads to a very early death and uh, a shorter lifespan. And you also do not get all the amino acids that you could get from corn without doing this process. So it's a big difference. So now we're talking about corn. I know we're going to get into the fats aspect because that was a primarily part of this. We're also saying, you know, when you have your corn on the cob, you know, it's really not that nutritious relative to when corn was prepared the other way. It's interesting to add that part of the reason that Christopher Columbus didn't pay attention to the processing of corn is because the Europeans thought that they were, you know, intellectually superior. They were far more sophisticated. You know, they had the guns, they had the the military, and the Native American populations were just, you know, slaughtered. That that's pretty much common knowledge. So they had in Europe, they were already milling grains, right? The grinding down, the millstones and the mills and so on and so forth. So you say, well, that's, we're far more sophisticated. We don't do it ourselves. We have, you know, water power to make the, to turn the, the grindstones and so on and so forth. So they considered that a better process. You know, they were more sophisticated. They really had it down to a mechanical process, but he missed the point of the extraction of higher nutrition from the corn. So henceforward, in both Europe and the United States, and I just told you the story about the U.S., we became nutrient-deprived in those populations, whether they were willfully or unwillfully, depending on corn for themselves. So now we introduced a whole level of illness, sickness, nutrient deficiency, and all the consequences that that's calling in the populations that we're now taking this new corn and thinking it's the newest thing the newest thing that has to be brought to your table in the kitchen, if they actually didn't have kitchens in. <laughs> okay. But I thought that was interesting. The process wasn't that it was forgotten. It was thought of being too primitive and didn't serve their purpose. Little did they know, for 500 and 600 years, they then introduced pellagra, which did not really exist prior to the introduction of corn without the original Mesoamerican process of the alkaline bath. Okay, so now the question becomes, when did dairy farmers start feeding grains to cows if it wasn't the natural thing for them to do, if it wasn't the automatic thing for them to do? You know, when you saw pictures of, whether it's in the United States, I'm speaking, in the 1700s and the 1800s, 
you had a cow behind the house, you know, eating whatever they ate, and that was the family cow. Or if you had small herds, you know, that's what you had. They just roved around and they were kind of like, you know, meal on a hoof kind of thing. That's all it was taken. They they weren't fed that much. Maybe they were fed hay, you know, which is another, which is grass, obviously. But corn, grain, silage, and all the byproducts that are fed to cows are fed to them, not for nutritional reasons, not for caloric reasons, but that it's cheaper and easier to feed larger amounts of cows and grain-based feeding rather than manage animals in the pasture, right? So it's that space thing that I was telling you about before. So prior to World War II, most U.S. farms were small and diversified. Cattle were put out to pasture and supplemented with very little in the way of any grains. You know, there's you know, unless they were starving or there was a bad winter or something like that, you brought the hay in. So and they wintered in the barn, of course, and they ate the hay that you brought in. So you always saw them gathering hay. You never saw them feeding corn. Okay, before World War II, most of the Americans had never eaten corn-fed beef. It was all raised on pasture. Cattle reared before 1950 usually took two or three years before they were big enough to now go to the slaughterhouse. So for the whole, you know, we think of the, from the late 1800s, the whole, those whole, the cowboys, and they're driving the, all those cattle and the doggies, driving them down to wherever it was, to Aberdeen or something. That had nothing, they weren't fed. <laughs> they were just, if they made it, they were sold. But as that got a little more sophisticated, it was still a lot of ranching, by the way, and there still is ranching involved for those pasture, big farms and so on. But that took two or three years to bring a cow, which is your product now, to be harvested or slaughtered and sold. So when peacetime arrived, there was a lot of mechanisms that World War II sort of brought us up. The military-industrial complex sort of pivoted over to become the industrial food complex. And I say that a little cheek and tongue, but I also say that it's exactly correct. So the World War II munitions industry surplus of nitrogen, right? That was all the bombs and so on and so forth, found its home in agriculture, setting off the really the first green revolution. That was not really so green in the end. It became, with the nitrogen was, it was obviously very, very cheap because they learned how to make it industrially. So now there's available nitrogen, which is one of the three synthetic fertilizers, which is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium that everybody uses on their lawn and everything else. Farmers could now grow grain and corn crops much more quickly. And the American farmer could now feed the world as well as its cows. Interesting. So the focus in the race towards higher yield and ever-increasing crop production began, and feeding cows is now inexpensive grain and corn did so as well. So they're now, hey, come on in from the pasture. We got some goodies here for you. And they mechanized, you know, now we're scaling. This whole thing is about scaling farming in the 50s and the 60s. Considering I was born in 56, this was interesting to look back. This is all happening as I was a little kid. You know, my parents, they would look back on their past. You know, they didn't have they wouldn't have known anything about this, you know, and that's not how animals were raised. Not that they knew that much, but the meat that they'd eaten before was not corn-fed. As American corn production skyrocketed in post-World War II era, and the demand for meat did too, farmers and ranchers turned to the new practice, fattening their cattle on corn. Cheaper and more efficient than grass, 
corn-enabled cattle to be brought to market in as few as 15 months. That's half the time of a pasture-raised cattle. So that's another thing. When you hear about grass-fed or range-fed, that's a big difference in time. So when people say, well, the pasture-raised cattle is more expensive, yeah, it takes twice the length of time to bring it to market. So anyways, this allowed farmers to feed the cattle and confined pens or lots, reducing ranchers' land and costs and limiting the risks or losing livestock to predators in bad weather. Grain-based diet for dairy cows became the norm. And the prevailing opinion for quite some time was that, oh, wait a minute, buddy, has been that dairy farmers who attempted to raise their dairy cows on grass were crazy. It couldn't be done. Isn't that funny? It couldn't be done. It became such the norm of feeding dairy farm and cattle too, but uh, dairy cows on corn that they thought, you can't, you know, it's about the quantity of milk because that's your product now is milk. So it couldn't be done and that you can't make milk with just grass. And that's how it was done <laughs> through the whole evolution of cows. So that's how reversed this thinking got. So I just thought that context was really interesting, how the shift happened. And so now what we have is corn, 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 corn. It's all over the place. It's become incredibly cheap to grow. The farms are getting bigger, more uniform, unfortunately. I'm not going to go down to the whole ecologic things. I will go into pesticides a little bit later. But now you know that we're scaling and you have this huge amount of corn available to cattle. So that's to the cattle part. Not only are we feeding it to cattle where, you know, it's being used for making plastics and being used for a lot of different things. This is where the vegetable oils came in. So when we heard about corn oil, it was in the 60s. So it's also soy and so on and so forth, but primarily it was corn. And it grew and that was the norm. So listen to this. Grass is altogether different nutritionally than today's GMO contaminated corn and soy, which is what has fed both cattle and dairy cows. So to that, you wonder about how have they adapted to this? And what else are they set up for? How can this be kind of a natural automatic shift? Well, it's not a natural automatic shift. The corn that's fed to animals obviously does produce food for people, and we're happy that that happens. But mainly, it's in the form of dairy and meat, but only after suffering losses of calories and proteins along the way for the animal because it's just not that digestible. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.